Wow, t-shirts, I feel like I'm at a concert here. What an introduction. That's great. Thank you, Alan. Well, this morning I have the honor of concluding our chapel course series on the presence of God, as Dr. Tennyson reminded us. But before I begin, I want us to return to a fundamental question. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this series? And as your new New Testament professor, it delights me to answer this question. We at North Central believe something radical, crazy in fact. We believe that spending time with God and in God's Word, by mulling over its details, by listening to our sisters and brothers in Christ, and by living into these ancient stories, it will actually change your life. You can experience the tangible presence of God in the Word. So the reason behind this chapel core series is really a plea to all of you that you would walk away from services like this and love Scripture as much as we do. So to that end, it's fitting that we end our series on the presence of God on the topic of a new heaven and a new earth from the book of Revelation. And I want to begin with a central question. We're calling this the what of our Chapel Core series. In a perfect world, what would God's presence look like? According to Revelation, what is God's future presence? Appropriately, I place this question in the subjunctive because we don't really know what a perfect world looks like. We have no idea, quite frankly. We've never seen it outside of science fiction, fairy tales, and my personal favorite utopia, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. I want to live there. If I were to ask everyone in this room to grab a pen and a paper and to engineer a utopic place, everyone's perfect world would look a little different. In fact, there's a good chance that your utopia would be a dystopia for me. A fascinating phenomenon is that when we imagine spaces that are perfect for us, they are often imperfect or even terrifying for others. My perfect world has cats, not dogs, no vegetables, and an endless supply of cookie dough ice cream. Come on. So for some of you, I just described what we might imagine hell to be like. <laughs> no dogs in heaven? I'm a cat person. To put it less playfully, if we're given the licensing right to make our own heavens, we would construct God in our own image. So to be perfectly clear, in today's scripture reading, this is not your heaven or my heaven. This is God's heaven. What would, or maybe better, what should God's presence look like in a perfect world? So before we begin to answer this question, let's read from the scripture passage for the day in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. Would you join me in centering your hearts and minds as we read God's word together? I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its king. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. John writes this passage about a utopia of sorts, heaven. We might say that John receives this vision of a perfect world. However, John receives this vision in the middle of a time of chaos and devastation. John writes about the best of times in the worst of times. Under the iron fist of Roman rule, the emperor and his cronies wielded unbridled power. Popularity of the emperor's cult, which was a religious movement that worshipped the emperor as God, was at an all-time high. Roman nationalism, we might say, had never been better. It was a good time to be a Roman. However, there was a dark side to this expanding economic and political success of Rome, a dark side that was felt acutely by minority groups in the empire chief among them the Gentile and Jewish Christians. Any political threat to the expanding and increasingly intolerant empire of Rome was to be snuffed out with the most extreme measures. Remember, these are the same people who crucified Jesus. They put him on a cross, the most humiliating public form of death, suffocation. Romans don't mess around. They're famous for their merciless brutality when it came to harming human beings. So in order to make Rome this unparalleled superpower in the ancient world, Emperor Domitian decides to kill, not put in prison, to kill, eliminate those who worship another king, who refuse to worship him as king. If you decline to participate in the emperor's cult, you've just written your own death sentence. Say goodbye to your loved ones. This isn't like turning down a wedding invitation. It's not that stuff. If you don't succumb to Rome's way of doing things, you might be killed. In the middle of that fear and chaos, John paints for us a picture of a different kind of world. But it's not John's world. If John had the ability to paint his own picture of the coming presence of God, it most likely would have looked a little different. This isn't John's perfect world. This is God's world. In John's day, the ideal life of a Christian had been shattered by Rome. Revelation 21 attempts to pick up the broken pieces and put together a beautiful mosaic of heavenly possibilities. Let's take a closer look together of this image John receives. He says this first in Revelation 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Right off the bat, the first words uttered by John are actually offensive. Now, it's not offensive to you and me, perhaps, but these words would have deeply bothered John's original audience. I did not see a temple in the city. Some Jewish people reading this in the first century would rightfully be filled with rage. What do you mean, John? 
You don't see a temple in the city? As some of our previous speakers have outlined, the temple of God houses and facilitates God's presence. John, you got to be making this stuff up. Heaven's got to have a temple. What do you mean? John goes on to say, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Within Judaism, there was this idea that God dwells with and among God's people. Zechariah 2 says this, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. John, when he writes, taps into this lineage of Jewish theology that describes God's presence with and among God's people. But John goes a step further. In a radical way, John explicitly says that the presence of God is without a temple. You know, this would be like me telling you, hey, when you go home for Christmas, your mom's going to be there, your dad's going to be there, your dog's going to be there, but you're not going to have a house. You don't need a physical house. Your parents' love for you will supply you with all you need. You'll be fine. Forget the cold. How would you feel if I told you that? Why would John declare that God is no longer in the place that God has always been? According to Revelation 21, God is not going to be in God's house anymore. Why would John say this? Well, we know by 70 A.D., Rome destroys God's house. The impact of this historical event is not felt by most Christians today. But for early Jews and Christians, the very presence of God was destroyed by the most godless people on earth. This is one of the most horrific events in early Judaism. Rome destroys God's house. And it's at this juncture in time that John picks up his pen to write as a pastor in order to make sense of this disaster to his churches. Why would God do this? Why would God allow God's house to be destroyed? How could this happen? Why would God allow such a magnitude of evil to take place? And John's response is nothing short of revolutionary. According to John's apocalypse, God's presence needs no house. God's presence needs no fences. God's presence needs no geographical location. In fact, Israelite and non-Israelite, Jew and Gentile alike, will bask in the sun of God's presence forever. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. In a world consumed by lust and power, hell-bent on accumulating nationalistic worship, love, Rome, or die was the message of John's day. John lets us in on a little secret. There's another kingdom coming. It's on its way, in fact. I can almost taste it. There's no borders in this kingdom, and it shines brighter than any Roman outpost, stronghold, or fortress. It's coming. We asked John, well, well, who's the king? Tell us, who's the king of this kingdom of which you speak? Who is this king that can outstand the powers of Rome? He's a lamb. John replies. All excitement and eagerness suddenly vacates the room. Are you serious? A lamb? 
My son, every night before we go to bed, we give him this little lamb. He likes to cuddle it. It's very cute. And he actually makes us kiss the lamb before he can go to bed. It's manipulative is what it is. John's portrait of a kingdom that rivals the power of the strongest nation on earth is a baby sheep. Not even a full-grown lamb. I had to Google the difference between sheeps and lambs because I didn't grow up in Wisconsin like Dr. Amy from Tacoma, Washington. And I discovered that according to world-renowned scientists, and Dr. Amy, you can back me up on this, that lambs are baby sheep. Come on, John, can we get a full-grown lamb at least? A lamb? Have you seen planet Earth? Are you getting this? I wish David Attenborough could narrate every aspect of my life. He has a beautiful voice. You know, I could show you a series of YouTube videos in order to demonstrate that lambs are not the dominant species in the animal kingdom. They can really dominate grass. They can go at it. But that's about it. If you want to stage a hostile takeover of Rome, wouldn't you say that branding mattered? Just imagine how that meeting went. All right, guys, let's huddle up. Okay, how are we going to overthrow the Roman Empire? Any ideas? John speaks up. Oh, I got it. A lamb. All right, John, sit down. A lamb's not going to do it. Next idea. John's revolutionary vision of a new kingdom and a new earth is engineered by the weak and the powerless. The king he describes in this kingdom is a lamb who was slain. Instead of opposing Rome with swords and a militia, this lamb dies. This leads me to the so what point of my message. To our question, what would or should God's presence look like in an ideal world? From today's passage of scripture, the answer would be a lamb who was slain. In the face of power and strength, remember this. We worship a lamb. We don't worship Rambo or Spartacus. We worship a little baby lamb. The kind of lamb my son cuddles with at night. I would like to say to everyone in this room, everyone joining us online, we have to get this right. Our priorities here can go wrong can derail. In 1 Samuel 9, the people of Israel wanted a king, and they picked a guy who was handsome and good-looking. He probably had a lot of Instagram followers. He certainly looked the part. But this handsome, attractive man, Saul, he could never fulfill God's mandates. He wasn't it. He wasn't the guy. You know who the guy turned out to be? A shepherd boy. Someone who loved, cared for, and even risked his life for these pathetic little bleeding lambs. Baby sheep. When we close our eyes and imagine a perfect world and the presence of God dispensing on God's people, we have to get this one right. It's very important. According to the prophet Joel, God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh Male and female, young and old alike, all received the gift of God's Spirit. 
God's Spirit does not go first to the strong, the rich, the powerful, the famous. God's Spirit goes to everyone. Let me ask you this. Who is in your heaven? Who in your imagination, when you close your eyes at night, the parts of your mind that no one else sees, who has access to God's presence? Is it only people who look like you? who act like you, who dress like you, who is in your utopia? If we take John's words seriously, in a world torn apart by political allegiances and worship of the emperor, heaven and the light of God's presence should be felt indiscriminately by everyone. So let me close by asking the now what? We've asked what would or should God's presence look like in a perfect world. We answered that God's kingdom is of a different order, engineered by the Lamb who was slain and intended for all people. So we ask, so what? What do we do with this information? What now? In closing, I want to tell you a story about a man named Henry Nowen and his friend Adam. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest and a famous theologian. A few of his books had a very significant impact on my life when I was a young pastor. Nouwen taught theology at some of the premier schools around the world, at Harvard and Notre Dame and Yale. But this is not the accomplishment for which he is most treasured. In the summer of 1985, Henry Nouwen decided to spend an entire stay at Larch Daybreak Community in France, leaving his post at Harvard for nine months. Larch was a living community for people with severe intellectual and developmental disabilities. Nouwen's experience was so life-changing that he actually left his position at Harvard to permanently serve at a Larch community in Ontario until he died in 1996. Nowen felt that this community to which he now lived and served as a pastor brought him closer to the heart of God than any other experience he had ever had. It was during his time serving large that Nowen wrote about a young man named Adam. Adam could not speak or move without assistance. Adam often experienced seizures and had to be kept under close watch for his own safety. Over time, Nowen developed a friendship with Adam. He would later call Adam his teacher and his spiritual guide. A man who taught at Harvard and Yale, who learned from some of the brightest minds on the planet, called a young man with challenging disabilities his teacher and friend. Adam died in February 1996, and Henry Nowen would die only seven months later. Nowen wrote the following about his experience with Adam, and I'd like to read it at length. Nowen says this, Adam was sent to bring good news to the world. It was his mission, as was the mission of Jesus. Adam was very simply, quietly, and uniquely there. He was a person who by his very uh, life announced the mystery of our God. I am precious, beloved, whole, and born of God. Adam bore silent witness to this mystery, which has nothing to do with whether or not he could speak, walk, or express himself, whether or not he had money, had a job, was fashionable, famous, married, or single. It had to do with his being.
He was and is a beloved child of God. It is the same news that Jesus came to announce, and it is the news that all of those who are poor keep proclaiming in and through their very weakness. Life is a gift. Each one of you is unique, known by name, and loved by the one who fashioned us. Let me leave you with this thought this morning. If we want to be agents to usher in God's coming presence, then we need to reimagine our heavens. We need to catch the vision like Nowen did that it is God's heaven, not ours. You have the ability to bring heaven here. You also have the ability to make chaos. If we take John's words seriously, we can create spaces without borders. We can give up our power and our privilege not to throw it in the trash, but to give it to somebody else. To quote the Apostle Paul, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I plead with you this morning, these simple things. Magnify the weak things in your own life. Bring honor to the lowly people in your life and give a megaphone to the marginalized. Let me say it again. Magnify the weak things in your own life. Bring honor to the lowly people in your life and give a megaphone to the marginalized. Thank you.